in the modern world, like an open source project by and large, for the most part, we're, we're kind of beyond the days of it being like this volunteer nights and weekends thing. Like the majority of open source projects are funded by companies, you know, that have an interest in that project being successful. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. All right, we're live today with William Morgan, the CEO of Buoyant, and also one of the early creators of Linkerd. Here to tell the story of Linkerd. Maybe, William, you can just give us a couple words about yourself and the project to give context for our listeners, and then we'll jump into the story. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's really nice to be here. So my, you know, my, my very brief life story uh, is that I was an engineer at Twitter on the infrastructure side. Obviously, there's a lot more that happened prior to that, but that's, that's, that's where, for service mesh purposes, you know, kind of my life began. And this was, you know, almost 10 years ago. So it was 2010 to circa 2015. And this was a time where Twitter was going through some kind of very massive infrastructure changes in kind of a public way. And what happened at Twitter, you know, the most amazing thing, of course, is that it worked because it was really this, this quite massive transformation. But what happened was we had this monolithic Ruby on Rails app and we turned that into microservices. And the output of that five-year process, which was really painful, involved a whole lot of lessons learned, you know, often the hard way, sparked kind of the initial idea behind Linkerd, which is our open source service mesh, and sparked the idea behind Buoyant, and sparked the idea behind kind of everything that we've been doing since. So you were you were kind of part of this transformation, this core thing, and all the, the learnings on what you need to do to be successful with microservices, the missing pieces some of that informed what you've been doing since, basically. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because we saw firsthand just how painful it was, right? Like Twitter's move from monolith to microservices was hugely expensive and it involved all sorts of uh, things that had to be done both on the technology side and on the people side, right? Both components there, both sides of that, that coin had to, had to move in some pretty substantial ways, to change in some pretty substantial ways. And so when my colleague Oliver uh, Gould and I, who's my co-founder and the CTO of Buoyant, when we left Twitter, basically the idea was, wow, that was a lot. <laughs> like, that was pretty intense. You know, and it sure feels like other companies are going to have to go through that same transformation. And in fact, what has happened, which has been really fascinating to watch, is that the advent of things like Kubernetes and Docker and kind of the cloud-native stack has actually made it really, really easy for companies to adopt microservices, at least easy on the deploy side, right? Uh, and so uh, it's actually exceeded what, what our expectations were for exactly how many companies would be and organizations would be going through this process. Yeah, I don't want to go too far off track, but this is interesting, this whole Twitter transformation. This predated containers, Kubernetes, et cetera. What, 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 was the, what would the stack look like, just briefly? Yeah, so it was weird and it was very, you know, the Twitter stack is a lot like, you know, it's like living in Australia or, you know, maybe yeah. irritate everyone from Australia, but like it's evolved in this really weird way where you've got kangaroos and koalas and meanwhile the rest of the world is like, no, we've got elephants. So it was strange. We didn't have containers. We had like C groups and we had the JVM, 
So we had the ability to kind of limit resource usage and we had the ability to like package stuff. There was no Kubernetes back then. Uh, we had Mesos. Mesos was like a grad student project at the time and, and Twitter basically you know, brought it to this production ready right. state. We didn't even really have the word microservices, you know, or we didn't know it at least. We called this thing SOA and we knew that was kind of a dirty uh, word. Wow. Right? Yeah. We hung our heads in shame. We were like, well, I don't know, we're making services and so it must be SOA. Yeah, right. Yeah. But what's been amazing is, you know, now if we fast forward to the modern world and people are hopping on Kubernetes and, and Docker and like all that stuff is, you know, what's remarkable is number one, just how advanced that stuff is compared to the Twitter stack. Like if you as a as a startup today are hopping on the Kubernetes bandwagon, man, you've got technology that's much, much better than what Twitter has, with some exceptions. And two, the problems that you have are actually really, really similar. You know, even though the details are totally different, the problems that you have are actually really similar to what Twitter had to go through. Yeah. So, okay, you and your co-founder then are, you've been through this crazy evolution within Twitter. You leave Twitter and are you leaving with like, we want to build a service mesh or whatever you, you know, SOA mesh, whatever you want to call it. Or, or are you leaving with like, that was hard. Let's take a break and figure out new things. And later the inkling to build that emerges. Well, so that, you know, there's some messy details in there. <laughs> right, right. I think from my perspective, at least, and, uh, you know, I think Oliver's perspective is a little different, but from my perspective, I knew I wanted to start a company and I did try a couple of different ideas to kind of varying degrees of, of failure. And it was really, you know, it's kind of like my founder journey and did the classic exercise I'm supposed to do, which is if you were starting something new, like what would you want to bring with you from your previous company mm-hmm. and that's kind of what led us down the path and actually you know honestly those first couple ideas i tried were very consumer focused it was really later when i when i realized gosh you know the stuff that i really understand and the stuff that really was transformative at, at twitter was on the infrastructure side it wasn't like the consumer stuff yeah yeah that's your competitive advantage. That's the thing you know better than anyone. I guess. Yeah. You know, this is like, okay, what, what do I actually understand really well? Like, what are the weird intuitions that I've developed and, you know, and that all of us actually at Twitter developed that the rest of the world doesn't really have? And that was the genesis for, for going down the path. But the question of, you know, did we start out with a service mesh? That's a really interesting question, right? Because that gets into naming and, and marketing and some of the things where early on at Buoyant, we learned some kind of weirdly interesting things that were unexpected, I think, coming into this process as engineers, where, you know, you kind of call it whatever it is, and you expect the world to kind of consume it as is, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> the world doesn't really work that way. Yeah. I like this idea of, like, the first commit, and, and maybe that's not the right thing to hone in on, but what's, like, day zero look like for Linkerd? So we started with this project, this open source project that came out of Twitter that was called Finagle. Right. And Finagle was this really transformative piece of technology at Twitter. It was this, we called it an RPC library, right? Which meant every service at Twitter communicated over RPC, which is, you know, remote procedure call. And Twitter used this particular technology called Thrift, which is ancient and busted in all sorts of ways. And Finagle, <laughs> you know, the goal of Finagle was like basically to provide this cool, functional programming idiom on top of thrift call. Okay. And we were like, okay, so first of all, that was super transformative for Twitter, but like no one else in the world is going to care about functional programming on top of RPC calls. 
and especially, you know, Finagle is like a scallon library. So it was, you know, on the JVM, you know, so we were like, all right, Finagle kind of had two components to it, right? There was like the programming model, right? The cool functional programming stuff. And then there was an operational model. We were like, okay, well, forget about the programming model. That's really specific to people who want to do functional programming over RPC calls. It's like, it's a weird audience. Yeah. But the operational model is super powerful, right? Because Finagle, you know, you as a programmer, you were like, okay, A is calling B. I'm, I need to make this call. And so Finagle, you know, go make this call. And under the hood, Finagle was doing retries and timeouts, and it was doing load balancing in this like super intelligent way where it would take into account the latencies of all these things. And it was doing a request routing, and it was doing like all these transformative things. So operationally, there was a huge amount of value. And so he said, well, let's literally just take Finagle, which is this library, let's just package it up as a proxy, right? And then a proxy anyone can run, right? And then it doesn't matter what language anything is written in. And by the way, we've got Docker now, so kind of the polyglot lifestyle is is kind of like something that people can adopt more easily. And that was really the first version, that was the first commit of Linkerd was just taking Finagle and turning it into a proxy. Got it. So proxy step one, we're not yet a mesh, so to speak, where right. we solved kind of the first order problem. And this is you and a, a few friends that are that are building mm-hmm. this. Yeah. 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 We hired our, you know, some of our friends from Twitter and you know, we were thinking in very Twitter E terms and what we quickly realized. Well, so so then we went, we had this funny exercise where, you know, we, we were like, okay, well, you know, people don't say SOA anymore, they they say microservices. So we're going to go uh, to all the microservices meetups and conferences, and we're going to say, you know, hey, look at this cool proxy that we've built, right? It's an RPC proxy. And, like, those conversations went nowhere, right? <laughs> it was kind of astounding how terrible of a reaction or reception we had. Because, first of all, the microservices meetups were full of people who were not operators. It was a lot of architecture, a lot of like, you know, here's our 24-month roadmap, and I want to talk about CQRS versus event sourcing and blah, blah, blah. And so we didn't actually meet people who were trying to really do this in in practice. And then the other thing was when we did finally meet people who were doing this in practice, they were like, I already have a proxy. I've got HA proxy or I've got Nginx. And we were like, well, no, no, this is different because this is, you know, an RPC proxy and blah, blah. And they're like, well, we don't use RPC. We use HTTP. And we were like, well, you know, in our ontology, HTTP is actually a, a subclass of RPC, so it's totally applicable. And they're like, you know, by the time you have these conversations, they had wandered off. Just talking past each other. Right, right. So we had a, one moment of inspiration where rather than talking to those meetups, we, we kind of stumbled into the Kubernetes community. And we were like, well, these folks don't, they're not using the M word, right? They're not talking about microservices, but they sure are building them. And they are actually having operational problems. And once we kind of made that association, everything became a lot more clear. Like here were fellow engineers who were just trying to get their apps to work, right? And and we're running into all these issues that Finagle and Linkerd by using Finagle was actually really good at, at helping with. And then the other kind of genius thing we fell into was instead of calling it a proxy, we said, okay, well, you know, the way this makes sense is you're going to add a lot of these proxies, not just one or three at the edge, you're adding them everywhere. So, you know, you can visualize that as like this mesh. So we're going to call it a service mesh. And service mesh had no meaning. It was like a meaningless blank term that we could then start writing into. We could define, you know, hey, here's what that means. And that actually had a profound impact on people's ability to think about what Linkerd was. So instead of confusing it 
with like, you know, Nginx and HA proxy, right? And the 50 other proxies that we've had, it was a new thing and it forced them to, to kind of treat it as such. And that was really, really important. It's interesting to think that relative maybe to your like consumer startup attempts where you might have been searching for product market fit, you kind of knew this thing, at least in Twitter land, was super relevant. And then you went to a bunch of people and they were like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Why would we want this? And you're like, no, but I can imagine the cognitive dissonance of like, but this is real. Like I've seen it be useful. And then to find a home where people get it would be very satisfying. Yeah. So that it is so emotionally taxing being a startup founder because either you're doing something that's really obvious and you know a hundred other people have already done it or you're doing something that doesn't make sense to the world at large and you have to like push through that and all you hear all day is like it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense doesn't make sense and i've got to imagine that like i think the only thing that allowed us to get through that was the fact that we had seen it work Right, that we knew this actually was a good idea. So it didn't matter what these people were saying. We knew this was the right thing to do. That allowed us to get through that period. Great. So there are kind of other people who emerged with service mesh ideas. Did that start happening now as you like coined the term and are finding first users, or does that happen later? So that happened about a year later. So what happened with, with Linkerd was, you know, we called it a service mesh. We actually hosted it in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. So we said, okay, it's open source, so we're going to do this right. It's going to be hosted by a neutral foundation. It was like the fourth or fifth project accepted to the CMCF. So it was like sitting alongside Kubernetes and Prometheus and these other projects that were very, very popular. And it started to take off. And pretty soon, all sorts of companies were using it. And sometimes they were telling us and sometimes they weren't, which is you know, one of the irritating aspects of, of open source. It's that, you know, you often don't know who's, who's using it until you find out three years later. Like we found out that all of WebEx is powered by Linkerd. And we found out because someone like curled a WebEx API and in the headers, it was like, oh, this request was served by Linkerd. And we we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. You have crazy experiences like that. Or I go to parties, you know, and, and someone was like, oh, so what do you work on? And I'm like, oh, you know, service mesh, and this stuff. And they're like, oh, it sounds like Linkerd. And I'm like, yeah, it's Linkerd. And they're like, oh, yeah, we use Linkerd all over the place. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Anyway, so yeah, open source can be frustrating in that sense. And on that point, maybe I should ask you about the decision to go into the CNCF Foundation. Mm. Was there a lot of thought around governance and how we do this? Or is CNCF just kind of an obvious next step? Well, so that gets more into the kind of the buoyant side of things. So for us, you know, there's like, okay, we've got this open source project, but how is Buoyant going to be successful, right? And it's important for Buoyant to be successful, obviously, for like, you know, a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is just in the modern world, like an open source project, by and large, for the most part, we're kind of beyond the days of it being like this volunteer nights and weekends thing. Like the majority of open source projects are funded by companies you know, that have an interest in that project being successful. So anyways, you know, what we decided early on was for Buoyant to be successful, what we didn't want to do with Linkerd was to do, what was common at the time was this kind of, uh, I guess you would call it open core, where you have like, you know, the open source thing, and then you've got the commercial extension. And you're always in this uh, kind of difficult position of deciding where features go and should they be in the open source? Well, that'll help adoption, but then we won't be able to make any money. So we'll put them in the proprietary stuff. But then, you know, you, you kind of have these bad incentives. Uh, so we didn't want to do that. 
And we knew that however buoyant was going to make money, we wanted Linkerd to be a full, like first class open source project that didn't have any of those reservations. So for us, that made the decision a lot easier because you're giving up control by giving it to the CNCF, right? It's now something that the CNCF posts it. It has some say in how it runs. They have the trademark and things like that. But it made a lot of sense for us, so it, it felt pretty natural. I think if we had a different business model behind Buoyant, we probably would have gone a different way. Yep. Your point earlier about you know most open source is kind of funded by companies, the kind of idyllic view of a nights and weekends community across the globe chipping in. Were there people that kind of came out of the woodwork to add a feature here or a feature there, or were they always kind of corporate representative folks? No, there were always people who came out of the woodwork to, to, to add features and, and stuff. And in fact, that was great for hiring because, <laughs> you know, we would often say, hey, you know, you're doing a really great job. Would you like to do this for money, you know, full time? And they say, yes. Right. So it's not that those people don't exist. It's that the majority, if you look at something like Kubernetes, right. you know, the majority of the code that gets in is done through like sponsorship from a company. So the nights and weekends folks certainly exist, you know, although in reality, I think it's less about nights and weekends. It's more about, oh, I'm using this thing as part of my job and it doesn't have this feature that's really irritating to me. And by the way, contributing to open source is cool and it's probably good for my resume. And therefore I'm going to like do this as opposed to, you know, kind of, you imagine the, you know, the days of Linux and, and Linus in his basement or whatever. I think as an industry, we've shifted away from that being the primary way that open source makes progress. And maybe it isn't that the Linuses of the world have gone away as much as the corporate world has shown up in large numbers to want to invest in open source. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. You know, people realize, hey, this is actually a thing we can do that's good for our company and it's it's good for the world as a whole. Great. So where are we on the life cycle path? Well, so what had happened is once we were in the CNCF, you know, that was kind of further fuel to the fire. We got a lot of adoption. But we, we noticed that there was this kind of source of, of friction, which was because Linkerd was built on Finagle and was built on the rest of the Twitter stack, it involved introducing the JVM into your environment. Like each proxy was like a little JVM proxy. And that was kind of okay for some people, but there were a lot of people who didn't want the JVM in their stack for reasons that were either good or, or bad. You know, they didn't want to adopt Linkerd because it was on the JVM. And the other implication, you know, was that Linkerd was, as a proxy, was actually kind of heavyweight. You know, we were sitting at, you know, after a whole lot of JVM tuning and that kind of stuff, we were sitting at 120 megs of RAM per proxy. And, you know, if you were running these big Java apps that were taking up two gigs, then an additional 120 megs per instance was, you know, not that bad. But if you were writing these little Go microservices that were sitting at like 30 megs of memory, and then we were asking you to stick a proxy next to each one, and the proxy was going to be 120 megs, well, (laughs) you know, now you're like, okay, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So there was some pushback around that. And then starting, I forget when it happened, 2017, I think, Google jumped in the game. So there was like the 800-pound gorilla. It was like, oh, I have a service mesh. And they actually had called it something else when they saw Linkerd being really popular and the service mesh term made sense. They were like, okay, it's actually a service mesh. So they introduced Istio. And then the rest of the industry, you know, console connect and app mesh and, and whatever else, there's like seven of these projects now kind of followed over the next couple of years. Uh, and in the meantime, we were like, okay, well, 
crap, Linkerd has some flaws, like namely the fact that it's on the JVM and, the, and that it's so heavyweight. And also, you know, we, we kind of did the engineering-centric thing, which was we were like, okay, well, Finagle has a million options, so we're going to expose them all to you, and here's a giant YAML configuration file, you know, and go to town, like you figure it out. <laughs> and the actual adoption path of Linkerd could be quite challenging because you had to understand a whole bunch of complicated concepts, including DTABs, which are like this language for specifying, you know, routing rules. You had to learn this whole complicated language. So anyways, there were a bunch of issues that basically led us to kind of late 2017 saying, I kind of think we need to rewrite Linkerd. And we spent the next year and a half rewriting Linkerd from the ground up to A, not be on the JVM. Yeah, so that was, that was like a pretty major thing. So A, we wanted to get off the JVM. And then B, we wanted to make it so that it was easy to adopt, easy to install. So we wanted to bring kind of some product sensibilities to this thing. And I wrote this long article in InfoQ about, you know, if you search for InfoQ in like Linkerd V2 or something, you can read about some of the history and, and some of the decisions we made. But we spent a lot of, you know, 2018 basically rewriting Linkerd from scratch. And in many ways, this is kind of expected. You were clearly ahead of the curve. You predated Kubernetes and in some degree containers. And I think all the other kind of noise or new service meshes seem to kind of post-date Kubernetes to some degree, at least. And so this is uh, expected to a degree, right? First mover advantage, you have to kind of tweak as the market emerges. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. And so V2, you just had, at this point, the Buoyant team is big enough that you can, as a group, come up with a shared view on what V2 looks like and turn it around in a year's time, as you described. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, 2.0 was, was GA'd in September of 2018. And the vast majority of our development efforts have been on the 2.x branch, you know, since that point. So two things have happened. One is like we've removed that JVM dependency and 2.x now, 2.7 is around the corner. We released 2.6 late last year, is built on the actual proxy. It's written in Rust, which is really cool for us because it gives us all sorts of security guarantees. You avoid a whole class of kind of the C++ issues around buffer overflows right. and things like that. And then the control plane is written in Go, so it fits into that Kubernetes ecosystem. And we've tied it, we've coupled it really tightly to Kubernetes, which was kind of a conscious decision we made, which means that it's much harder to apply outside of Kubernetes. But if you're adopting Kubernetes, then it is so easy to get started and so lightweight and so fast. And the security kind of posture is so good that We've seen a, a huge amount of adoption. In fact, we now, you know, we now, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but we've got a huge amount of Linkerd adoption that's just coming from the Istio camp where they learned about the service mesh from Istio. And they're like, oh man, that seems great. Value props seems great, but man, this thing's a beast. Let me go check out Linkerd and it's really fast and it's really lightweight and you can install it in 60 seconds. So there's been this kind of like weird shift where, you know, those first few years we were defining this term Right? And we were kind of like doing a lot of evangelization. Now, we don't have to evangelize the service mesh. Everyone knows it's a thing. Although, we do have to tell people, hey, it doesn't have to be like this complicated thing. It can actually be really simple. It can be really lightweight. It can be like this incremental thing rather than this giant layer of technology you now have to bolt onto your Kubernetes clusters. Yeah, and we talked briefly about Istio. Envoy, which has a relationship with Istio, showed up 
somewhere in there as well. Yeah. Tell me about presumably the Linkerd proxy, which you refer to Linkerd as a service mesh, but it comes with a proxy mm-hmm. that you know is part of the mesh. Any comments about like the beginning of Envoy in relation to your history and like shared inspiration, that sort of thing? Yeah, so you know, Envoy came out. I forget when, but it was you know around the time that, that Linkerd was starting to gain traction. It seems to be a great project. It's a general purpose proxy. So it's like a much better version of Nginx, basically. And what has happened that's been interesting is people have used Envoy to build lots of stuff. So people, you know, Istio uses Envoy as its proxy. Most of the other service meshes do as well because it's really useful building block layer. For us, it didn't make quite as much sense because we knew we wanted to build something with security as a focus from the bottom up. So we wanted to start with Rust and not with a language like C++. And also having control, because we had the wherewithal to build our own proxies, right? Building a proxy is actually, it's really difficult. Building a high performance, you know, high throughput network proxy is, is an incredibly challenging technical task. Because we had the expertise to do that, we wanted to do that and do it in a way that made the most sense for the service mesh. So Linkerd has this proxy called, it's just called Linkerd-proxy. And it's not a general purpose proxy. It's super tightly coupled to Linkerd because our goal was to kind of solve the service mesh problem, not solve the general purpose proxy problem. So, you know, if Envoy is like a Swiss army knife, Linkerd proxy is like a little needle, right? You can't use it to saw down a tree, but you can use it to, I don't know, whatever you do with nuke, you can use it to poke a hole. <laughs> and that's part of what's made Linkerd so lightweight because those proxies are so small and so fast that allows Linkerd to be really, really lightweight in a way that other service meshes cannot. Yep. So you came up with the term service mesh, kind of defined the category. Istio has carried the banner almost on your behalf in some ways of like evangelizing the term to both parties benefit the category. But I, I remember you posted something recently around kind of further defining service mesh. I imagine you probably need to continue to kind of clarify what mesh is, at least to link or D, as the term expands and gets thrown around. Yeah, so, you know... It is very convenient for us that the service mesh market has been so validated, right? It's been validated in like the right. the, the, the most forceful manner possible. Yeah. You know, what's unfortunate now, I kind of alluded to this, is that we now have a struggle where there are people who are turning away from the service mesh because they're saying, oh man, it looks really complicated and it looks really bloated and it looks like this, you know, pile of enterprise focused stuff where I'm defining these YAML policies and blah, blah, blah. And they know that because they're encountered, or they think that because they're encountered with the service meshes through Istio. And so we actually have to be a little aggressive in the messaging and say, hey, guess what? The service mesh doesn't have to be that way. You can install it in 60 seconds. One of the things we worked very hard to get to with, with Linkerd is we had this idea that if you have a functioning Kubernetes application, and you add a service mesh, the application should still continue to function, right? It's like <laughs> you shouldn't break things by default, which doesn't sound like genius, but Istio could not do that, still can't do that. And that was a really important principle for us because we wanted to make it something that you could add without fearing you know, for your life, without having to then spend six weeks writing configuration. Yeah, totally. William, as we kind of wrap up the story here, I want to make sure we capture any kind of 
final thoughts you have on either the future of Linkerd or the things you're working on today. And then I, I have one more question I wanted to ask you around. Earlier, we talked about your wanting to make this kind of a pure open source project, gave it the CNCF. You don't have to think about open core. So you, through Buoyant, monetized by providing a service, presumably. Any comments on how that kind of debate settled that you had internally? Yeah. So for us, it's actually been pretty clear from the very beginning. And the model that we have is that the surface mesh actually doesn't really matter. The surface mesh is irrelevant. That's a little, a little bit of an overstatement. But nowhere in the mission of Buoyant, you know, nowhere in our strategy does it say, okay, service mesh, anything about the service mesh or, or Linkerd. The really important stuff for us goes right back to our experience at Twitter. It's what happens when an organization adopts microservices, right? What happens when they make this transformation? I mentioned early on that there's the kind of the technical side of things and then there's the human side of things. The stuff that is easy for open source to address is on the technical side of things, right? How do I make these computers talk to each other? Right now I've introduced this big distributed system and I need to think about retry storms and things like that. And that's what the service mesh is really good at. But what the service mesh cannot help you with is how do I have all the engineers in this organization communicate with each other in a way that now makes sense, right? We all used to get together, you know, on every Tuesday or once a quarter or whatever it was and like deploy, right? We merge all the branches in. Okay, it's deploy Tuesday. Everyone like stand by. All right, deploys out. Oh no, the deploy failed, right? That world is long gone. Right now we've done all this work to decouple the entire engineering org into individual teams that own their own services and they iterate as fast as they want and they're deploying whenever they want. They're deploying 30 times a day. And that's great, right? That's a really positive transformation. But the result is that the way that these engineers need to coordinate and need to communicate with each other is actually really, really different from how it was before. And that is an organizational set of challenges that Buoyant can solve that are not possible to solve in open source. It's not a computer problem, it's a, it's a human problem. So we introduced a, we did a very soft launch of a SaaS app called Dive at KubeCon last November. And the goal of Dive is to solve exactly those challenges. And Dive is something that is becomes relevant when it's enabled by a service mesh, when it's enabled by Kubernetes adoption and kind of the shift into microservices. But ultimately, the technology choices are kind of a implementation detail. What's important to an organization is the fact that we have to change our processes and the way that human beings are interacting. So that's where I see kind of the real value of Buoyant and certainly the part of the problem that I'm really excited about working on. This has been great, William. Thank you for sharing this with today. Maybe just one parting thought as we wrap this up. I, I think it's amazing that your early experience at Twitter for you know a brief time has powered decade or something of innovation. And it's interesting to reflect on how critical an experience that was for you. And it, it's interesting to think about placing ourselves in the bleeding edge of transformational epochs to kind of have similar experiences. Yeah, I feel fortunate to have been there at that time. I think things would have gone very differently if I were somewhere else. And I certainly didn't realize what I was getting into. <laughs> yeah, but you, you didn't plan for that. Right. Thank you very much, William. Best to you and the Linkerd community and Buoyant. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure being here. You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.com. 
www.contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. <laughs>